So we're continuing our series, Meet the King, and uh, we're at Mark chapter 10, verse 32 onwards, and we're going to go to 45. I'm going to preach today on on the topic that I started last week, which is position. It's our position in relation to Jesus Christ as his followers, and as always with this church, there's a prophetic emphasis throughout the church in the worship songs that were so chosen, in the prayer that was delivered. And uh, I want to encourage you, I, I just feel like the Lord laid a few things on my heart and um, for this church as, as, I, as we're exiting really, and however you feel about that, I just feel that this church is in God's economy at the start line. I feel like God, it's probably the wrong mouthpiece to use, but I'll say it, and I feel like God would say, don't give up. You're about to start the race. Some of you will feel like you need to keel over at the finish line now because you've given everything for the cause of Christ here. But as I heard the Lord say that to me, I watched in my spirit and I saw um, people like rivers running out of this place across, bizarrely, I'm turning into, uh, who's our prophetic wonder, wonder man at the back? Come on. Sending into you. Um, the people were running across the, the gangways at the top, and it was young people, and I believe there'll be a move of God across the gangways, prophetically, not actually on the physical gangways, but through the streets of Chester. And I believe there'll be largely, this will fall like a firework in the rain if I'm not being prophetic here, but I believe this is what God's saying to me, so I'll, I'll give, put it out there. I believe that God will have a move of young people in the city of Chester. I saw young people, as it were, catching the ball, a bit like catching the baton, and running through the streets of Chester as fiery brands. I believe the Lord also spoke to me and said that this church is a fountain bubbling up, and the springs would send out people into the city. Um, You'll forgive me if I have brain blocks halfway through. I've had such disrupted sleep over the last few weeks. Lewis has been struggling to sleep. He's been a little bit afraid at night. So just hold us in prayer with that because it's uh, something we're just praying through. Um, but we're all good. So I feel that the church here will flow out as a, from a fountain source into the streets of Chester and there'll be a movement with young people. I believe, as I said, you're largely at the start line in God's economy of what he will do through this church and don't give up because you will see a move of God. I also believe that, I hope uh, Mike doesn't mind me sharing this, that God is going to take your life and in some ways you feel like you've been hollowed out like a tree through experiences but God is going to work through your grief and your situations to grow many lives out of your ministry. I saw a bit like a decorative planter, I know this is a bit, a bit, a bit awkward to, to, to see this as an image, but I, I'm turning into Graham. <laughs> I wish I was as prophetic. And, and, and the, the, the lives that you influence will grow out. So in one sense, you feel like you were cut off, but actually in God's economy, is going to cause it to work to be a place where you will be someone who causes people to bloom where they're planted, to, to, to be a life of under, under, undergirding other lives and affecting other lives for the kingdom. And the Lord is stirring you for more ministry. As I speak. Ah, hallelujah. So let's go to position. Let's read 
meet the king. Mark chapter 10, 32 to 45. Jesus foretells his death a third time and they were on the road going up to Jerusalem and Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid and taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him saying, see, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And Jesus said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. And Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism that I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those whom my Father has prepared. I overread into that, didn't I? Verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Can we repeat the phrasing that I said last week? You've probably forgotten it, so I'll give it to you now. It's keep up, there's a cup, we're down, not up. Don't worry, Mark, he's looking confused. We did do it last week. Keep up, there's a cup. We're down, not up. We got up to keep up last week, and I'm going to recap for those who weren't with us what I said about that. This here is the third prediction of Jesus' passion, his crucifixion in Mark. There's eight, chapter 8, verse 1, chapter, sorry, chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 31, where Jesus has previously predicted his passion, his crucifixion. And herein, we have almost an introductory passage that links to this teaching on greatness in the kingdom. But in that which appears to not have any event, any significance, almost just to stroll with the Savior, there is something deeply significant which we explored last week. And that is that Jesus was walking ahead of them. I love what R.T. Friends, the commentator on Mark, says. He said, Mark has managed to provide a vivid sense of the urgency and for all but Jesus the incomprehensibility of the death march to Jerusalem. Just remember those two words if you didn't quite get what what Artie Franz said. The death march. This is Jesus picking up the pace. And the interesting bits that I pointed out in the text was that there appears to be two groups amongst them. The the word D is used in the Greek, which is often used to change ideas. It's what we would call in English a conjunction. It's almost like the coupling on a train between two carriages. It links from one idea to the next. There are the 12, 
and those who are following. And largely because of the Greek grammar, it appears that there is a crowd and Jesus trusted or Jesus closer circle with him. It's highly likely. Either way, whether I'm right or wrong on that, there is a sense of foreboding over the group. There are those who are thambeo, which is to be amazed, to be astonished, and also to be frightened. That is the 12. They are sincerely disturbed by their saviour's behaviour, who has uncharacteristically picked up the pace and gone heading in his death march towards Jerusalem. And there is probably the crowd, like we see in the feeding of the 5,000, the, the groupies gathered around Jesus, who are coming up with the flow of what Jesus is doing. This is, this is bizarre behaviour for a man who's done signs and wonders, but he's obviously up to something. We want to see what the Saviour is doing. The application that we used last week from that was that in our life and in our world, there are very distressing and disturbing events happening. As individuals and globally, the world has come under a turbulence probably because of the global village and the media that we have that shouts to us from one corner of the globe what is happening, but also that which is very, very much marked of historical grievance, like that of Sennacherib, where people's heads are put on poles, where people are being raped in the homes and horrific stuff like that. We see it on our newsreels now. There are many people trying to bring biblical interpretation to this, and the confusion is on the church. They are almost thambeo. They're almost like, what on earth is going on in our world? Christians are being slaughtered in Iraq. Some people who are in the Christian church are back in the Palestinians. Some of them are back in Israel. There are pro-Zionists. There are pro-Palestinians. And the church is confused. The church is thambeo. The church is wandering behind the Savior and wondering what he's up to. Where's Jesus in all of this? And I drew a parallel between that in the Old Testament scriptures of Habakkuk, Nahum, um, exilic period, where there is almost the intervention of God in human history that is a level above the socio-political sphere. In other words, what is going on on the newsreels that confuses us is not where our eyes should be. Our eyes should be on the Saviour, who is Lord of all, And I preach herein today the sovereignty of our Lord and God and Saviour Jesus Christ. And I pointed to Habakkuk because it's very clear that even though we cannot comprehend, as Isaiah said in Isaiah 58, the, the, the thoughts of God, that God clearly raises up even dictators, even horrific peoples, to create a platform in our world whereby he acts to take humankind towards the climax, which is the return of his son Jesus Christ. So in the case of Habakkuk 1.5, we've got Habakkuk moaning to God in the verses leading up to verse 5. And then Habakkuk, and I mentioned this last week, Habakkuk says, God, what are you up to? And God answers him graciously, as he always does when we ran to him. He's very gracious and tender. And he says, look among the nations, Habakkuk, and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days that you would not believe, though it were told to you. And all the Pentecostal and charismatic Christians would say, Revival! But God then says in verse 6, hey, I'm raising up the Babylonians or the Chaldeans, as it says in some of your your versions. They're a ruthless people. They're about to tear my people to bits as punishment because they've turned away from the living God. It almost seems uncharacteristic of the Lord our God. But we have to see that actually when the people of God move away from the sanctuary of walking with God 
that the protection of God is almost removed from God. We see that in the judges period. And they go through a cycle of separation from God, grievance, grief, persecution and repentance. And some of us, you know, like the Israelites, we would come away from the majority of our suffering, not all of it, and not all of it is for this reason, if we did walk close to the Savior. Psalm 91 says that we dwell under the shadow of the Most High. Why? Because we long for the one we love. There is a following, there is a pursuit of the divine. Now clearly, some stuff in people's life is not in any way a result of them walking in a distance from the Lord. Quite clearly the opposite. The worst trials come often on the people who walk closest to the Lord, almost as Rachel said, to kill them. Because as we'll find later on in this text, the Lord is desirous of all people to walk in a death march. As we are following the living God, as we're following Jesus Christ, God is saying, follow my son. And the whole of the passage is about that. This death march of Jesus is actually the parade of life. I'm preaching about Jesus, Lewis. Do you want to preach? Jesus in my heart. Yeah. We love the Lord Jesus, don't we? Do you want to preach with me? Tell him about Jesus. We're talking about how God is in control of everything in the world. It's good, isn't it? He knows how to do everything, doesn't he? Do you want to go and sit with mommy while I finish off? You'll probably be able to hear me at the back. I can hear you. <laughs> you can hear me shouting. Should I change my preaching style? <laughs> Let's do it together. We will preach the word together. So, the Lord... And it looks like fire and fire and a Spider-Man puzzle. <laughs> well, we're talking about... We, we said Jesus is stronger than Spider-Man, didn't we? Better than Batman. Better than Superman. Better than anyone. There's a Hillsong song about that. You need, get it out, Mark. Get it out for freedom. Do you want to sit with mommy? Let the little children come unto me. Amen. You see, that's, therein is a truth. Actually, we complicate matters when we think we can do anything. Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. Use it as a platform, as you know, to demonstrate how little we can do. It's the reason he labeled his people as sheep. Sheep are dumb. <laughs> they haven't got a clue. They need a shepherd. And we're going to come to that. This shepherd king who we are following, who knows the end from the beginning, who has a clear descriptor. It's not that the, the Christians shouldn't be aware socio-politically or of current affairs, but actually the moment we start partaking of what Jesus calls the leaven of Herod, understanding a political sphere only, getting caught up in worldly power, we miss that Jesus the Christ said, my kingdom is not from this world. If it was, my servants would fight just like your armies. But actually he spoke of a higher order. I love, I love how Christians twist things, you know. They take the scripture and they do what's called eisegesis. They take it out of tech context and they apply it just to their pocket idea about God. And they almost create a God in their own image like the calf that they called Yahweh. In the Moses account, do you remember that? They came down the mountain, they called a calf, they made a golden calf, they called it Yahweh. We do that to God. In the context of scripture, sometimes people say, that psalm that says, be still and know that I'm God. And they say, there you go, brother, there's a peace card for you in troubled times. 
That's absolutely not what the scripture is about at all. It's about God coming into a warring world and saying, be still and know that I'm God. Because he's going to do that. If you read Zechariah 14, you see God who's going to come, whether it's figurative or real, God is going to come and he's going to stop the world and he's going to allow righteousness to reign on the earth again. However you interpret, whatever lens you put on end times, the Lord is going to restore everything. He's going to make all things new. He's going to take away every tear from your eyes. Those of you who've been weeping. He really cares about your suffering, but he wants us to recognize that we are pilgrims and sojourners in this world. We're just passing through. Rachel's world was very prophetic this morning, this evening. Hello, I'm still in Bethel. It's amazing who God uses. What an idiot. Thank goodness for Jesus. Rachel's world was very prophetic. She spoke about a death march for the Christian. And you and I need to get to grips that we're not to lambast people like George W. Bush. This, 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 what, do you remember that? People were slating him. Do you remember? Some of you might not remember that. They were slating him and his politics, called himself a Christian, sat with Billy Graham. How dare he treat and think that America rules the world? They're messing with the leaven of Herod. They forget that God raises up civilizations and he brings them down. Just read Habakkuk. He's, he's Lord of all. He's Lord of the universe. We're told to pray for those in authority. Why? Because we want God to actively work through the nations to bring his kingdom on the earth. But his kingdom is not of this world. It will culminate with a cessation of everything. Please read Zechariah 14 when you go home. It has nothing to do with this preach. But boy, it challenges you to, to, to see things coming apocalyptically when Jesus returns. challenges you to look at your newsreels and say, Lord, I just want to be like the people at the end of Revelation who says, come Lord Jesus. Because that's the best end times theology I can give you today. Come Lord Jesus. To have your eyes on the Lord, to be one who is following the Lord wholeheartedly, like Caleb. He had a different spirit, and that was his label. He followed God wholeheartedly. You see, I want to tell you something that you're probably aware of. If you look at another scripture that points to end times, Matthew 24 speaks of, I'm not going to sing, of end times signs. It's a bit confusing because there's AD 70 mixed up in there and the destruction of the temple. But we see incredible signs of the end of the age. But within that, in verse 12, we see this phrase, the love of many will grow cold. saying you're not encouraging me but the people who will persevere to the end and that's Jesus language he who in that same passage he or she who perseveres to the end will be saved now I didn't wrap around that elaborate theology about how it's all going to roll out and when people do that to you they don't know either okay so don't follow as a sheep somebody's teaching on end times who says this is the way just be interested in it. Have your own position. But the truth remains, Jesus, this is my theology, Jesus is coming again. And Jesus teaches us how to prepare for that. He teaches us to follow closely, follow hard after him, to pursue the Lord, to be God lovers. This is eternal life, to know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you sent. It's not about what we know, but it's who we know. Do you know the Lord today? 
Jesus is a shepherd king. It's a bit of a longer preamble than I wanted to mention, but we mentioned last week this idea of Jesus goes before us. And the Lord spoke that into my heart in the study when I was thinking about this. I go before you, Stephen. And he can say the same thing to you for your life. I go before you. And then I looked into the scriptures and found what does it mean in scripture where God says, I go before you. And all the way through scripture, it's about a shepherd king motif that goes ahead of his people. For what reason? To protect them. To fight on their behalf. To provide for them in wilderness seasons. To cover them with his feathers and to carry them safely to the other side. We have a God, and it was sung about today. You go before me, you are behind me. Who goes before you, he will look after you. He will provide for your family. He'll make sure that when you go through the fire, you will not be burned because his presence will keep you. Is that right? Some of you have proved this already many times. He's the Lord who carries his people as the shepherd king. And our only job is to follow him. You see, as followers of Christ, like believers who have gone before us, we're required to go the same way as him. The pathway where he suffered, fought enemies, and translated to a state of glory. This is Christianity. Our position is to be one of humble dependence on the shepherd king. I love the scripture. In Philippians where it says, have this attitude in yourselves, Christians, which was also in Christ Jesus. It's in Philippians 2.5. And it says, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard himself equal, sorry, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For the name, for this reason, God also highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, those in heaven, those on earth, and those under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now let me say, we've said keep up. Now there's a cup. Don't worry, I will finish this. I'll be dragged off by key. Keep up, there's a cup. You see, Jesus in that passage in Philippians, is called the kenosis passage. It's called the self-emptying of the, the Christ. It's about God, the Lord Jesus Christ, being equal with Father, with the Holy Spirit. And even in that place, that ontological state of being holy God, he pours himself out as nothing and became even like a servant to his own disciples. Even beyond that, to a lower base level, to be butchered at the hands of sinful man. And he did it as a model for the lives of people who would follow him. Whenever you see Christianity preached on any particular Christian channel, non-mentioned because I don't want to put you off them, some great stuff on them, and you hear this idea of a bubble Christianity where you do not go through any bad stuff where you do not get given any trials, it's just not Christianity. Some people have got to this place of man-centered Christianity where they almost get the place of being able to manipulate the divine. They turn God into a puppet God and say, jump to the crack of my whip, God. I want you to give me this, Father Christmas in the sky, God. And if I just believe a bit more, maybe I'll get that Mercedes. And there's rubbish like that preached when actually true Christianity is 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 a message of death. That leads to life. Did you hear me? It's a message of death that leads to life. There's always a cross 
before a crown. There's always suffering before glory and sacrifice before reward. Does anyone know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Does anyone, if you don't study him, he's a remarkable man in, in, in uh, Germany who, who lived during Adolf Hitler's reign. He suffered greatly at the hands of the Nazis. And he said this, when Christ calls a man, or a woman we may put in there, he bids them come and die. Let me say that again. When Christ calls a man or a woman, he bids them come and die. You see, we've, we've preached a gospel that isn't the gospel. We've called people to admire the cross and see a Jesus on it and never actually get on the cross themselves. All such admiration is only religion. It'll never change your life. It'll never save you. It'll never translate you to glory. It'll only leave you pondering ramifications of the wonder of this divine God-man that was butchered at the hands of sinful men. True Christianity requires us to follow the Savior. And every single Christian will have to go through this butchery. The cup that Jesus tasted. He said to the sons of thunder, you know that cup? You also will taste it. Actually, the early Christian fathers there were martyred. Many of us will not have that suffering, but all of us will have a cross. There will always be a cross before a crown. You will always in this life go through it. If you bypass the cross to admire the Savior on it, you're not a true Christian. I'm tentative about that. Theologically. So I have room for you to slate me on that one. But I believe in a God that transfers his presence within to the believer to mark their identification of their salvation. To, to be united with Christ in his death is the message of Paul to the church. For you were buried with him, Romans 6, in baptism, into death. So even as Christ was raised from the dead, you should walk in a newness of life. But we've got, in Christianity, this admiration of the crucified God-man and people who come with their Sunday best on, and the only thing that gets changed on a Sunday is the clothes they wear so that people see them looking good. It's not the state of their heart, which every one of us needs changing. Every one of us is, is diseased with sin. And as we'll read on in a minute, is diseased with ego, which is actually the biggest blight on humankind that exists. It's actually mankind's greatest problem, the ego. The ego has landed. And you and I suffer with egocentric living. As Isaiah says, we have turned everyone to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, the punishment, in other words. The avon is the word in Hebrew. The outgoing wrath of God and the after effects of sin were all put on Jesus for those who believe. But still, you were crucified with Christ. You no longer live, as Paul said of himself. Christ lives in you if you're a true believer. It's this exchange life that Derek Prince also teaches about that is true Christianity. It is not the admiration of the Savior on the cross. That is just religion. It is the exchange of a life for salvation. As Paul writes to the Colossians, you are no longer here. Set your mind on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of your Father. So that rubbish about too heavenly minded to be any earthly good is absolute tosh. Get your mind on things about heaven because some of us are far too earthbound and too concerned about our own life to be concerned about God's agenda and we are self-centered. 
which is where the disciples were. And there's grace and there's room to, remove, to maneuver in this. And I'm preaching it very rigid and God is filled with grace and God is able to keep us from stumbling and present us faultless. There is grace beyond what I'm preaching, but ultimately, this is the skeleton of Christianity. This is the bare bones of our religion that we exchange the life of Jesus Christ by his spirit for our life that was crucified with him. And that is the hallmark of whether you're a born again believer. Paul says, you have been sealed with the Holy Spirit, which is a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So I don't look for what people say. I don't look for what people do. I don't look for their service in a church. I don't look for their lineage or who they come from. I look and say, has that person got the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life? Because they laid the life, listen to me, they laid their life down at the cross. That's Christianity. And as Rachel prophetically said earlier, and then things can start happening. When we let Christ live, live through us, as Phil said also in the service, the prophetic is being spoken in Freedom Church. This church is a fountain. Are you still with me? Spurgeon said there is no crown bearer in heaven who was not a cross bearer on earth. Brilliant language. It's true. There's a cup of suffering that every Christian must drink from in varying degrees before the glory of the age to come. You who are following Jesus, like the disciples, sometimes disturbed, like the disciples, will be experiencing heartache, pain, physical ailments, tragedy, difficulty, anxiety. And you know what? That's normal Christianity. Ouch. Don't you mean I get to live in a place of serenity and utopia all the time? No. Actually, sometimes Christians have just got to be the biggest courageous warrior the world's ever seen and keep going and keep on keeping on in spite of it all they will not back down because things of eternity matter a lot more more than the temporal existence we're living in Jesus and his kingdom come we pray with the Lord's prayer and some of us we won't stand for it when it's counting when it really matters you still with me the cross speaks of death to self-centered living to the to the ego which has been a human default setting from its origins. Look at the start of the Bible. The serpent says in Genesis, you shall be gods. Do you remember that? And from that very moment, the poison of Satan's self-centered, proud heart that's spoken of in Ezekiel, Isaiah, was injected into the heart of the human race. They became a self-centered race, and God's only remedy was the cross. Because it's there that the ego is killed and that the reign of Christ is established once again on the second race, the Christ race. For as in Adam all died, so in Christ all should be made alive. How are we made alive? By the very life of God in us when we give our life to him at the cross. It's an exchange. Am I making sense? So this ego is what flashes... From the sons of thunder, it is mankind's greatest problem, and the cross is God's unrivaled solution. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him in verse 35 and asked, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to us, Grant us to sit, one at your right, one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We're able. 
And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you will drink and the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. This idea of us sitting at his right hand, they know he's heading towards the royal city, Jerusalem, one at your right, one at your left, and they're trying to get ahead of the other ten, which is what we read at the end of this passage. They're trying to get a position higher. They don't get it yet. It's even in the early part of Acts that they don't get it even at that stage. It gives Christian leaders something to rejoice about in their ministry, because actually around the Savior, his followers didn't get it. Post-resurrection, they didn't get it. And we're in that place sometimes as Christian leaders that people don't get the vision yet, but we just keep on following the Savior. Grant to sit, one at your right, one at your left. Ego has entered the scene. The ego has landed. Let me just say this because I want to pass on to the last point quickly. Ego is a glory killer. Ego is a glory killer. What do I mean by that? I mean this, that actually when the ego has landed... It raises up self instead of God. It reverses the divine pattern for existence that was formulated at the beginning of time where God made man in his own image and reigned in that world as Lord of all. When when the self replaced the divine self, when ego replaced the great I am, because ego just means I in the Greek, I at the center of my life. When that was exchanged, the great I am was replaced by the little I am, it then started to unravel. The ego was landed. And we get that even in the church to this date. First Corinthians 1, you see that Paul says, you don't lack any spiritual gift, any spiritual gift, in the first chapter of First Corinthians. The church would have been raising the dead, casting out devils, pulling people out of ancient wheelchairs if they had those sorts of things, seeing thousands of converts, people's shadows just blasting people as they walk by. No spiritual gift, prophetic Paul's almost ironic when he says this at the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. He says, you don't like anything to do with utterance, which was very big in the Greek world because they like rhetoric. You don't like anything. You guys are riddled with it. So we get to chapter 4, this church that doesn't lack any spiritual gift. And Paul quite sarcastically says, you say that you're kings. And even in a church, the ego lands when people start to move in power and become great. This is why I want to finish on a certain point on this because I see in freedom a lot of health and it needs to remain like this. Hear me, there's some big churches that are not as healthy as this. Listen, when ministries get the anointing of the Holy Spirit, please celebrate it, but don't recognize it as maturity. Maturity is not power, it is not the gifts of the Spirit, it is the fruit of the Spirit. It is the ones who are like Jesus. It is often the quiet ones in the pew who don't do much apart from shine. Do you know what I'm talking about? They carry the fragrance of the Lord. They'll be at the front of the queue when the rewards are given out. But in 1 Corinthians 4, you've got this sense of Paul being sarcastic saying, you say that you're kings. Why don't you act like the apostles who were just like slaves being carried on in a death march? That's true Christianity. It's the life laid down. It's the humility to say, even if God uses me to win a nation, I am just a servant. I am, I am just a servant. I am just doing what I should be doing. I have the light of the world in my life. Why shouldn't I let my little light shine? 
So whatever you achieve for Christ, it is just service to the king. I love what Patrick Lencioni says. He's a business leader. He says, I'm sick of hearing about servant leadership. Interesting. Business leader. He says, I don't think there's any other type. Did you hear me? So whatever part of the body of Christ you become, whether your hand, whether your mouth, whether your eyes, the ears, whatever, the feet, that spreads good news, you're put there by God and you're just serving because of your love for the Savior. Following Christ will attract persecution. It will attract suffering. As Jesus said, they've persecuted me, they'll persecute you also. Timothy says, all those who live a godly life suffer persecution as Christ did. Listen, the Christian journey will, if you're doing it right, listen to me, I'm telling you a truth because I observe it in the history books and I see it in the scriptures. If you're doing it right, it'll be the hardest life you can possibly live. Anybody in? Jesus said it. He said, the road is narrow, Difficult is the way, and there are few that are on it. Few true followers of Jesus on the way. Wide is the road, and easy is the way that leads to destruction. Even in the church, there are those who are tares, and there are those who are wheat. When the harvesters, the angels come, there are those who are true followers, and there are those who are Sunday best Christians. Are you with me? Rachel called us, and we'll stop here on these last few points, to die again. To recognize that you were crucified with Jesus Christ at the cross. And only in that state of mind will you ever allow his power and his presence to live through you in victory. And a lot of your life, even though you'll have many blessings and great joys, will be difficult. You'll have the opposition of persecution. If you're a friend of all people, I think you're either backslidden or not a Christian. I'm being a bit blunt here today, aren't I? But this is true Christianity. Because persecute, see, you'll be in a workplace and you'll wonder why people are bashing you. Some of you won't, you'll have, you'll have switched the light on and realize. Do you know persecution, when it's used in the language of the Bible, is about being pursued by someone? Narrow is the road and difficult is the way. And when the ego rises within a heart, it needs crucifying. True Christianity is the follower of the Christ on a death march that recognizes Jesus' words, and I'm going to read them to finish with, that they are only servants with a savior who was translated to glory for the joy that was set before him. And do you know what? Here's this this sweetener. That joy is ours. And we must have our eyes on the prize. And we must never give up. We must never back down. We must never surrender. Because as much as this is a metaphor, this is a reality too. We are at war. And so are you if you're following Jesus. You either pick up your sword and start to pray, cover your marriage, cover your family, cover this church, cover your career and your job. You know, you pray for everything. It's not self-centered to say, Lord, I pray you bless me in my job. I pray you give me the grace to, if you're not earning enough money, for example, say earn more money, etc., etc. Lord cares about everything in that part of your life. But everything in our life must be bathed in prayer. Everything must be boiled down simply to this, that we follow Christ. That we're people of prayer and we're people of the word. Is that enough? 
Let's read Jesus' words to finish. Mark 10, 41 to 45. And when the 10 heard it, you see, they were indignant because they wanted it as well. They, were, they wanted the position and they just thought the other two would hop the queue. They were indignant at James and John and Jesus called them all to himself and said, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, some of you are good at this, whoever would be great among you must be a servant and whoever must be first among you must be a slave. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Service is not just towels and washing feet. People get this wrong. It's a bit like a football team. You put your best people in the best places for them. It's a bit like the body that Paul uses the metaphor. Find out where people tick, release them into it, and let them be who God made them to be. And it's all service. Don't judge the leadership if they're not washing feet with towels. I've even seen churches do that, and it's okay. Sometimes the Lord inspires it. Get the towels out, get the water out. We'll wash each other's feet and pretend we're servants. Actually, no, we use our giftings for the glory of God with a humble heart for the building up of our church. Are you with me? And that's all service, whether it's to the least, as Jesus said, or to the greatest act. It is all, for me, flat. However great you are, or however weak you are, it's just service. Amen.